Um, I wonder if you've ever asked the question, how can I trust you, God? How can I trust you, Jesus? How do I know that you are trustworthy? According to a recent book um, published called You Lost Me, young adults say that the church is not a place where they can uh, freely ask these questions, freely express their doubts. They feel that the church's response to their doubt is trivial. Some feel unable to speak about their most pressing questions of their life. And maybe some of you have big questions on your minds as well. Well, when we arrive in Genesis chapter 15, we see Abram having trouble perhaps trusting God here as well. It's not that his life is bad. He's been living in the land of Canaan for some time, and he's been, he's gotten rich. Um, God has taken care of him. He just came from a military victory in Genesis chapter 14. And when God comes to assure him that there's nothing to be afraid after having fought this fight, Abraham makes, makes it known that he's not worried about his safety. Um, he says God himself, God says God himself will, will be his shield and reward. But Abraham says, I'm not really concerned about that. He wonders that about one thing. He wonders about the promise that God made to him Genesis, in Genesis chapter 12. He talks about his child. What about this child that you promised? This child who will inherit this land. He blurts out his complaints. What can you give me? Since I don't have a child, and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. Literally, that first part could be translated as, what can you give me since I am going childless? What he's saying is, I am going is literally, it's euphemism for dying. I am dying childless. What can you give me? What about the promise that you made to me? He had lived in faith. Trusting in God and his promises, he hasn't become a great nation. He hasn't really been a blessing for all people. And most importantly, he's still without a son. And according to the Near Eastern custom, when you don't have an heir, when you don't have a child, um, then the servant inherits everything that he has. So he says, how about this? How can I trust you when you made this promise and Eliezer of Damascus is going to inherit everything. And later on, in verse 7, he blurts out another question. God appears and reminds him that he has called him out of war um, uh, to take possession of the land of Canaan. But Abram, who once left the land of Ur without asking any questions, he just left, at this time, protests. He says, How can I know that I will gain possession of it? At this point, it seems like God's word isn't enough for Abram, and Abram wants an assurance. In effect, once again, he's asking, how can I trust you when you make these promises? Um, I wonder if that sounds familiar to all of you at all, on any level. Doesn't that sound like us sometimes? How many of us have asked questions like uh, the, the, the father in Mark 9, whose child is dying, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Um, I just went on a quick holiday, and I was reading about life in North Korea. 
and just how terrible it is. And I, write, I read, uh, again, a recent article about a, a, a guy who escaped, who was born in the uh, North Korean labor camp and who escaped and all the things that he went through. And I just had to ask myself, how could such callous, callousness and atrocity exist when God rules this world, when he is sovereign over this world? When I... When my cousin committed suicide a long time ago, I, asked, I had to ask God, God, how can this happen? When I know that you are a good God, how, why is this happening? And I want to take this opportunity to just to tell you that you can ask these questions in the church. Parents, when your kids, when your children ask these questions, you should be taking these questions really seriously. When we ask these questions to one another, we should be taking them seriously. Abram asked these questions. Psalmist asked questions. Job asked questions. People crying in lamentation, in exile, asked these questions. Christians suffering persecution under Roman Empire asked these questions. And the Bible takes these questions seriously. And most importantly, God takes these questions seriously. In response to Abram's first question about his heir, the Lord appeared to him again and told him that Abram's own flesh and blood will be his heir. And that would have been enough, but then he took Abram outside and he said, look at the stars, look at the stars in the sky and count them if you can. And so, will be, will, so, so it will be with your heirs. And in response to the second question about the land, how can I take possession of this land? God makes a visible symbol of his promise. He condescends to human level and swears by death. He makes a covenant with Abram. And we'll see that in detail in a second. And the point is, God took his questions very seriously. The church is a place to ask these questions. For as long as you talk to God, I think when you ask these questions, it shows the underlying faith in God as well. Underlying assumption is that God is good, God is sovereign, God is powerful. And it's only when these things are questions, you ask these questions out loud. How can this happen? It betrays your faith in, in these questions as well. And the book that, that book that I mentioned, you, you, you Lost Me, is about young people who are leaving the church in droves. And one of the reasons um, for leaving the church is uh, that the book identifies is because they, they don't feel free to ask these uh, questions, to doubt seriously. And our text shows that this shouldn't be. Our father is concerned about what his children think of him. And he does take the time to assure us. It might mean um, through the words of scripture. It might mean assurance that comes from an encouragement from a friend, an open door or answered prayer. But God does take the time to assure us of, his fa- of our faith in him. And sometimes I think, I've, I've had times in my life where I thought, you know, God gives you just enough <laughs> It's just frustratingly enough to keep you going, to keep you believing in him. But God does that. 
God might say no, God might say wait in his divine wisdom, but God might, God in his grace might say, this is the assurance that I give you today. So do ask um, these questions. That's really the, uh, that's not the main point of the passage, but I do want to take the, uh, take the opportunity to tell you that church should be taking these doubts and these questions seriously, and you should be free to ask these questions to me and to others around you. Uh, but secondly, uh, when God uh, assured Abram outside, uh, took him outside, and showed him the stars, Abram believed in the promise once again. And Genesis of chapter 15, 6, verse 6, is the most famous passage in this chapter. For it states how faith, how faith saves us. So let's go to it. Chapter, uh, chapter 15, verse 6. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. And it is an awesome statement. Because Abram's faith, it was credited to him as righteousness. In fact, this is a tremendous moment in the history of the Christian faith, because this is a moment how, when God reveals to us how he will count us righteous, how we can be reckoned as righteousness. And it's not through the works of the law, but through faith. And Paul will later pick this up and when he writes to uh, his letter to Galatians in chapter 3. Um, if you can actually go there, turn to Galatians chapter 3, verse 6 where Paul writes about Abram in this very passage. Galatians chapter 3, verse 6, and on. He says, Consider Abraham, he believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then those who believe are children of Abraham. A scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you, through you. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. What he says there is that the Gentiles, like the, the, all Christians, do not have to work for their salvation, do not have to earn their salvation. In fact, it is faith that saves. Abraham was saved through faith, and he became father of all those who believe, all those who receive this righteousness from Christ by faith alone. Faith alone. But if you think about it, what does that mean then to believe Christ? I certainly do not think that this text in Genesis, uh, Genesis chapter 15 or what Paul is saying is that we're saved through some special knowledge. Some Greeks believed precisely that, that if you know the right things, that you can be closer to God. It's called Gnosticism. Gnostics believe that God revealed himself in through, uh, 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 through different levels of knowledge, that acquiring knowledge uh, will, will get you closer to God. I'm afraid that that is, I think, how a lot of people, a lot of Christians understand their faith as well. They believe that knowing the right things saves them. Knowing the right things, that Jesus was the Son of God, that Jesus died, he rose again, uh, that God exists in three in one. If I know these things, then these things saves me. These things save me. 
But here in the story, in Genesis story, faith, I think, is more than knowing the right things. It is more about trust. It is no more about trust than knowledge, trust than belief. Maybe belief implies that there's some, that belief is something that you possess. Knowledge that is stored in your brain. On the other hand, I think trust implies a relationship. It says, I know you are trustworthy. It says more about the person speaking rather than, uh, than, than, the, than the thing that they're speaking about. The truthfulness of the statement. And this is what exactly Abraham did. Abraham trusted the Lord. He trusted God as he was speaking. He trusted in, the, in God's promise against all odds. No matter how old and Sarai was, he and Sarai was at that point. No matter the fact that Sarai remained barren. No matter how impossible it seemed, he trusted God. He took this assurance from God and he believed God. And it's that trust that makes him the father of faith. He believed God. And we have rightly emphasized the fact that the works do not save us. In fact, sometimes it does positive harm to us when we believe that our, when we give, when, when our works, works give us false assurance that we are saved because we're good. Or it does harm to us when it makes us insecure because we're so bad. Works do not save us. At the same time, just knowing intellectually that Jesus has died for us does not save us either. It's the trust that we have in Jesus. Trusting Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Trusting in his word. Trusting him. Trusting him no matter how uh, things, even when things don't make sense to us. Even when there, we don't have answers to everything around us. It's the trusting in his work, in who he is, what he has done. It's in that relationship that saves us. Abram didn't gain a special knowledge at this time in this conversation with God. But he did uh, come to trust in God again when God spoke those words. And in that trusting relationship, he was made, he, he was reckoned as righteousness. Um, and finally, I want to spend some time in, 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 the, in, in sort of these fantastic elements of our story in chapter 15. Um, so God appears to Abram and says, you will inherit this land. You'll take possession of this land. When then Abram protests and says, well, God, sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? And God's response is uh, not what you expect. So this is how he responds in verse 9. Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with the doves and young pigeon. This is puzzling, isn't it? What do these animals have to do with possessing the land? But Abram seems to know exactly what he's supposed to do, because in the next verse, he gathers, he spends all day gathering these animals, then he slaughters them, he cuts them into two, and arranges the halves of these animals opposite of one another, except for the birds. He then guards 
these uh, carcasses of these animals for the rest of the day and he wait, as he waits for further instruction. What we know from the ancient Near East, Eastern customs is that Abram is preparing for a covenant-making ceremony. Covenant is the solemn contract between two parties. What they would do is they would cut these animals um, and, and in half and, and, and facing uh, them, um, putting them at the opposite of one another. And the idea um, and, and what they would do um, then is they would spell out the conditions of the covenant and then walk between those animals. The idea was that if either party violated the condition of the covenant, that they will be like the slaughtered animals. In effect, what it says is, if I don't keep my part of the covenant, then I will die like these animals around me. So you see, when Abram asks, how do I know that I will gain possession of the land? God's answer is, I will make a covenant with you. Gather these animals. And look to verses 17 and 18. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. Just as he appears later, in the pillar of fire and smoke, he appears to Abram as a blazing torch and walks between those animals, confirming those co- that, that covenant. What he says here is there will be uh, 400 years of delay, that they will go into slavery, but they will come back. Your descendants will come back and take possession of this land. I promise you that on account of my death. The important thing is that, for us to notice, is here, what God says is, if, if I break this covenant, that I will die like these animals. Because the penalty of a broken covenant is death. Whether that's possible or not, that God, God can't die. But uh, what he's saying is, I will not break the covenant, but if I break it, the penalty is death, like the animals scattered around, uh, 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 around Abraham. And you see, this isn't the only covenant that God makes with God's people. When the Israelites came out of Egypt, God made a covenant with, uh, with them, at the foot of Mount Sinai, he gave them Ten Commandments. If they fulfilled the law, they were going to be blessed. If they were not, then the penalty, in the end, as we know, with all the covenants, is death. But of course, Israelites break the covenant. No one could keep even the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments really is the basic, the basic of the basic, right? Even the Ten Commandments, no one can keep the Ten Commandments throughout their life. Think about it. I mean, honoring God, um, having only one God, having no idols before us. Think about all the idols that you've worshipped throughout your life. Honoring our parents, not lying. How could we do this throughout the rest of our lives? It's not just the Ten Commandments. Whatever standard that you have, whatever standard that you judge others with, you will not be able to keep that standard yourself throughout the rest of your life. 
It's just not possible. This is why Paul says in Romans chapter 2 that people do by nature do things that are required by the law, and those things become law to themselves, for them. And God has revealed himself through the nature and through our, our, our mind and hearts that, that um, uh, we know what to do. We know what, uh, we, we know what would please God, but we cannot do them. We have the standards through the Bible. We have the standards through our conscience, but we cannot keep them. And the penalty of breaking these laws, these covenant, is death. But I wonder if you uh, caught the peculiarity of the covenant that God made with Abraham. You see, usually both parties walk through um, the broken, uh, in between the broken carcasses. But here in verse 12, Abram fell asleep. He fell asleep, and it's only in the darkness of the night God appears and walks through. Abram contributes absolutely nothing to fulfilling that covenant. He slept through it all, just like us. We contribute nothing to fulfilling God's covenant. God, who kept the covenant in his side, receives no reward. We who broke the covenant still receive the rewards of the covenant. This is because God pays for for the penalty of the broken covenant. Jesus dies on the cross. So to pay the penalty of this broken covenant, he becomes those animals uh, halved and scattered around uh, Abraham. And we started with this idea of doubt, how we, have the ch- uh, the, we, we are free to doubt in the church. And we then talked about faith, how faith alone saves us. But I think one of the things that you will doubt again and again throughout the rest of your life is how it is that a sinner like you can be saved. Only through faith that your works do not contribute at all. You will doubt that for the rest of your life. How can a sinner like me receive this reward only through faith alone, only through trusting God alone? And your doubts will only go away again and again throughout the rest of your life if you see the cross, if you see the penalty that God paid for you so you can receive the rewards of the covenant. It's only when you realize that God had paid the penalty already that you'll be assured of your salvation. In a moment, we will celebrate uh, the communion, which is a visible reminder of of what Christ has done for us as the covenant was a visible reminder of the promise made to uh, God's people. And during uh, the celebration, I will lift up the bread, and then I will break it in half. And I'll repeat the words of Jesus. Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you, which is given for you. He becomes that body, tossed on the floor. I'll then lift up the cup of wine and say, Drink this, all of you. This is the, 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 the cup of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many, for the forgiveness of sins. He becomes the animal, the, 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 the blood that was shed 
um, at the death, at the substitutionary death. And at the table of Jesus' reminder, uh, the reminder of Jesus' death for us, I hope once again that you'll be reminded that you don't have to doubt about your salvation, that you can be assured, even though you are not righteous, even though you are not sinful, I mean, you are sinful through and through, that you can receive the, the rewards because Christ has become um, our, our death for us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for your death for us. Thank you that we do not have to do anything, Lord, to receive this salvation, but to trust in the works that you have done for us. And Lord, we pray that as we celebrate this communion, that you'll remind us once again of what you have done. And we pray that as we go out to live our lives throughout the rest of the week, that you'll empower us with the message of grace, that we'll, help, we'll, we'll rejoice in the salvation that we have received in you, that will be a, 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 will be a song that we, that, that, that we sing, um, that our lives may be a song that we sing to you and to others around, uh, around us uh, for the rest of the week. We thank you so much for your grace. In Jesus, in your son's name, amen.